Patience is a virtue. Not right now it isn't. Nothing says romance like a gift of a kidnapped, injured woman. Life finds a way. So, pretty much touch anything and you get your head chopped off. I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. What more can be said about Jurassic Park than what has already been said? <laughs> I mean, probably not much. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Follow the Adventurelings on social media <laughs> at the Adventurelings <laughs> for, on Instagram, theadventurelings.com. That's all for today. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> yep. I loved the idea of like, what more can be said? And then just being like, Nothing. Nothing. We're not even going to try. <laughs> Bye. Adios, <laughs> baby. Listen, I get where you're coming from with that. There is so much information, commentary, etc. But here's the thing. I have never gotten tired of watching it. So mm-hmm. hopefully people will not get tired of talking about it. That's all I know to say. Like, we're probably not going to be breaking headlines. But this movie, 30 years later, continues to be so solid. The filmmaking, the acting, the cinematography. I mean, the effects were very revolutionary. Regardless of whether it has been talked about, I think it deserves it. It's such a good movie. I agree. And it's such a good movie in the context of the year it came out as well. So let me paint you a picture. 1993. You're five. I'm eight. The movies that are coming out this year are insane. I'm going to read you a list. Just for the audience, all of these movies came out this year. There are so many iconic movies, and hopefully more that we'll do as well. Adam's Family Values came out. The Fugitive. Free Willy. Tombstone. The Pelican Brief. Cliffhanger. The Age of Innocence. The Sandlot. Schindler's List. Sleepless in Seattle. Robin Hood Men in Tights. Mrs. Doubtfire. The Secret Garden. Groundhog Day. Cool Runnings. Rudy. Philadelphia. Dazed and Confused. And I don't know why I chose to end with this one. Leprechaun. <laughs> like, that list is what a crazy. Year. Yeah, it really is such an insane list. And I wonder if in the moment people realized what was happening. Because there are so many iconic films that you just listed there. And I had no idea that they were all from the same year. Because when I was exposed to them, it was over a long period of time and everything. But just imagine that being your year in 93. Like, what an incredible year for filmmaking and film watching. Oh, man. I mean, I feel like just based on that list that 93 has a strong argument for being one of the best years for film, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's astounding. And so many movies that I love are on that list. I mean, honestly, judge me if you will. The top one for me is Tombstone. I love Tombstone so much. We both do. Yep. It's the little spinning cup that he does on his finger. The Doc Holliday. Oh, the Doc Holliday thing. It's just, Val, I love you. Oh my God, I love Val Kilmer. It's an amazing year for movies. And I mean, the merchandising for this movie was really intense. I was talking to Dave earlier and he was talking about all the little toys that he had from it. I mean, maybe it was earlier than this, but it seems to me around the time that you started to get a ton of like movie merchandising as well. Mm -hmm. So it hit different because they were really pitching it to kids. I don't really remember the toy aspect very much. I don't either. I didn't have any toys from this. What I do remember is there was a big boon of people painting their cars to look like (laughs) the cars that you were going through. Yeah, the Jeeps and the Ford... Broncos? I don't know. That are in there? Yeah. 
that is actually something that I still see today and endures, mm -hmm. which is always really cool. But yeah, interestingly, you're talking about all the toys and everything that came out of this. For being something that got commercialized, it's like the best IP possible that could then be commercialized. And the marketing to kids, I guess, is a little surprising because <laughs> it's, it's, it's so murdery. It's an intense <laughs> movie, right? Yeah, it is. I don't know when I saw this, but if the merchandising was happening right after the release and trying to capitalize on the success of the film, I wasn't the target audience for right. sure. I was too young. <laughs> yeah. Okay, listen, here's another thing too, is like, I haven't read the book, full disclosure, but I have mm. read about the book and apparently it is so much worse. Really? Not worse in quality, but worse in killing. <laughs> so okay. somebody was like, hey, Michael Crichton wrote this novel the concept's really cool. Why don't we remake it for kids, you know, instead of just pages and pages of the viscera of people coming out? We'll, yeah. we'll make it for children. But it works so well. <laughs> it does. I don't know why I have this cognitive dissonance of it not being a kids movie, because in the movie, a lot of what happens is happening to kids. Mm -hmm. And that's actually... My favorite performances in this yeah. movie are those two kids. They're so good, especially, and maybe I'm biased, but I really especially feel like the older sister does a really good job. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so I feel like it's not a kid's movie, but it has kids in it that you can relate to when we were kids and we were watching it. For some reason, it doesn't stick in my mind as being something that was ever targeted to kids. I want to know the rating. I'm going to look it up really quickly. Okay. So it's PG-13. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just thought of this, too, is, like, the kids were, I mean, they're a little bit older than we were, but about the age. And I think their difference in age between the sister and the brother is about what we were, too. Yeah, you're right. They really are pretty similar to us. And maybe that's why we connected with them a little bit. But I don't know that we saw this movie when we were their age, exactly. No, I mean, I can't imagine that. I don't remember when I first saw it. It's kind of another one of those that just sort of is in my brain. But there are so many things about it, so many shots from it. Also, the music is so good. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could just list for days and days all the things that are iconic about it. Number one for me, Laura Dern. I love her. Yep. I love her. I want to be her. I want to be able to pull off shorts like that. <laughs> she is amazing. Jeff Goldblum, though, I have to say, like, I know a lot of people look at this movie and see Jeff Goldblum for the attractiveness of his character. I just always mm -hmm. really related to him, not really because that's my vibe, you know, what he's wearing and all that stuff. But I feel like the way that he communicates and the kind of jumping from idea to idea, I was always like, oh, that's what I sound like. And I don't know if that's true yeah. at all, but I always really connected with that. Or just like, that seems like how a real person would react in this scenario. Yeah. You know, you've got two paleontologists that, of course, have a ton of knowledge about this subject and then... Malcolm is much less so knowledgeable, but always has a quip, always has a line, you know, is always insightful, even though it's oftentimes comedic as well. But I feel like he's the everyman kind of in <laughs> yeah. there, in the mix. Yeah, there's so many great people in this. I mean, obviously, Sam Neill, some hilarious stories about his accent in this, by the way, famously non-committal, but that wasn't entirely on him. Laura Dern, of course, Jeff Goldblum, of course, Richard Attenborough. And my personal favorite, who I love from many years on Law & Order SVU, B.D. Wong. B.D. Wong, yep. He is always so much fun to watch. He has this 
quality of always kind of having like a smile that's sort of like he's got sexy little secret. You know, like his face, like <laughs> there's something about his face. His eyes are so twinkly and he just sort of always looks like he's just kind of like hmm, yep. thinking about something in the background. You know, I love him. We also have a return. We've only had a couple actors make multiple appearances. Julian Ryan Tut being <laughs> the first, but we have Mr. Samuel L. Jackson mm-hmm. coming back in his second film after Long Kiss Goodnight. Yep, absolutely. And he's a lot of fun in this. I mean... Honestly, mm-hmm. the lines, the iconic lines as well. I'm going to have to stop saying the I word, but it's the truth. <laughs> so his line, the hold on to your butts, which the number of times that Dave has said hold on to your butts to me is got to be in the tens of thousands at this point. <laughs> hold on to your butts. Anytime we're in the car. Is he really that bad of a driver? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> He's just dramatic. <laughs> I know. No, I don't know. So when you think about it, Mm -hmm. one of the challenges with asking you what scenes really jump out to you is that because it is so I-word, a lot of those scenes are going to be the same. You know, it's the kids in the kitchen being hunted by the raptors. Mm -hmm. It's the shot, that amazing, I think it's a crane shot, where when they're first at the park, it's the brontosauruses, it's Sam Neill and Laura Dern, the rising up out of the Jeep, they both get a very similar shot of that, like... The hat taking off. The hat, the glasses. Yeah. That shot. Like, ugh, ugh. Oh, and the scrambly of the T-Rex on the plastic roof thing when it comes down into the... Mm-hmm. Yep. So for me, those are the kind of the first ones that I think of. What jumps out to you? <laughs> well, you took a lot of really I stole good ones. them all. That's a benefit of going first is I took all. Well, you were like, what are, what, 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 what scenes do you, you like? Here's mine. Here, let me tell you. Here, <laughs> here are the ones that I like. By the way, it's all of <laughs> let them. Let me list all the famous scenes. No, so you did list a lot of great ones. I think the ones that stand out to me the most are actually the ones that are kind of quiet because there's so much really incredible detail that was added from a sound design perspective Mm, yeah thinking about like when the ride stops and you know the kid puts on the night vision goggles and you have this bleeding of the goat that you know then suddenly stops and then you know they look over there and they see it and then it's just like from dead silence to this cacophony of sound coming from the t-rex and then just like some of the breathing noises it's so full. They did such a good job of taking something that happened hundreds of millions of years ago, bringing it to life, even though I know that there will be people out there that point out inaccuracies. Oh, yeah. And I did my research on that, too. But There are some. <laughs> in terms of just making dinosaurs feel real, like they could exist in the same space as us. They did such a phenomenal job. Impeccable job. And I mean, you're right. There are inaccuracies. That's a different podcast. And I know because I've listened to some of it, paleontologists can break it down. But the decisions they made mostly served very specific purposes. It wasn't just arbitrary. Yes. Usually. The raptors being the best example. So as far as I have learned, the real raptors came in very small and then jumbo. (laughs) The ones in the movie are kind of like medium large. There actually were mega raptors. They were more rare, but they existed, but they were way bigger. And then there were little ones. Right. And that's the more common. Yeah. So the velociraptors from what is actually yeah, I should have said correctly referred to as velociraptors are pretty small. They would come up to maybe your knee. But then the next size up from that is the Deinonychus, which is bigger. But, you know, like at the time that the movie started 
shooting, that was the largest raptor that was known about. Until during shooting, the Utah Raptor yeah, that's the, yeah. was more popularized. It had been discovered in 1975, but then in 91, there was a new set of bones that were found in Utah. And it kind of reinforced the idea that there were raptors that were getting into that six foot category, which is where we see them in the film. So, yeah. And I also don't want to be too judgmental on this because we were saying it. it's a film that was shot 30 years ago and I don't want to judge it based on modern science when the concepts about dinosaurs being much more feathered is a relatively new concept I don't expect them to have yeah sure made that decision and all that stuff do you have a favorite dinosaur in the movie or just generally but mostly just of the ones that you remember is there something specific that jumps out I think I actually really like the little guys that run along beside them. There are those like tiny little bipedal raptors that kind of just like run around and they're just like minding their own business. They kind of like flock together. And then in Jurassic Park 2, they end up killing a girl. But we're going to skip on past that. (laughs) They haven't murdered anyone yet. They haven't murdered anyone yet. And they just seem like they're just out there living their best life. I don't really find myself being very attracted to the big killers or anything like that. I just like that there were all kinds of different dinosaurs and that... You get to see a lot of things in action. Yeah, exactly. For me, there are a lot of... Like, I'm kind of torn. Brontosaurus, I love. But I think I'm going to go with the Triceratops because it's the first tactile thing. You know, they touch her. She's sick. Mm-hmm. That beautiful shot of Sam Neill laying on her and listening to her heart and her breathing is yes. just so beautiful. And I think for me as a viewer, just getting to imagine what it feels like to lay on the chest of a Triceratops. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. I'm having a breakdown, honestly, like about... <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know what else to say because it just is. So I'm going to go with that. That's a great answer. And it brings up the point that there was so much time invested in the practical side of things. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, it was visually a breakthrough in a lot of ways for the visual effects industry, but the practical side of things also just knocked it out of the park. And I'm going to reserve judgment until after we finish watching it, but this might be the best example of a movie that blended practical and special effects. (laughs) I agree. Almost seamlessly. I completely agree. And in fact, I just wrote down on my little notepad here, practical versus CGI. Like, I completely agree. Like, the way that they used both of them, complemented each other, it's just masterful. Yeah, and even though CGI and practical effect techniques have come a long way since then, like, on both sides of the house, I would say, the art of blending the two... I think is what I'm highlighting here. Mm -hmm. It's it's like the way that you make them work together in the same space and make them both believable. That is an art that is kind of timeless. Absolutely. I mean, in our Stardust episode, you were talking about location as character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this movie is a really good example of that for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously the dinosaurs being kind of a part of the landscape, but then also this is a movie that knows how to use the props, the physical space that it's in. I don't know really how else to put that, but I love that about it. Yeah. And that scene in the kitchen is going to come up a lot because that was one of the things that 
I was thinking about going into this is in terms of making the dinosaurs feel real. Mm-hmm. The fact that they have hot breath, oh, like us. The claw clicks? Oh. The claw clicks, the breathing out onto the glass, and it's not just a sound. It's accompanied by the glass mm-hmm. getting condensation Fuck, yeah. on it because they're real. You know, yeah. they have breath, a hot, yeah. moist breath. It's all really incredible. But yeah, I was also going to bring up the location as character thing if you didn't so i'm glad no no i'm just glad that (laughs) you were thinking in the same realm as me yeah that's awesome yeah i mean john williams also i just want to just and another thing okay maybe we're kind of waddling our way toward what i think is kind of a main point about this movie so like you were talking about using space using sound there are scenes in this movie where you have incredible swells of music there are scenes in this movie that have absolutely no music there are scenes where you have like the rain with the goat you know you have just the mm-hmm. rain just the little goat sounds what do you call that bleating bleeding that's what i called it i don't know if, so bleeding is for sheep uh, i assumed I it was the same thing for goats i don't know what? i'll look it up <laughs> what sound do goats make right in and tell what us what does the goat I... say no, that's a sheep. I swear to God, I cannot remember off the top of my head what a goat sounds like. Anyway, so in all of these different aspects, we are seeing a real balanced approach. When do I use this? When do I not use this? When do I give it the full emotional swell of music? When do I pull back? When do I yeah. show this big dino shot? And when do I show something really specific and personal? Yes. There's just... I want to say nuance. Like, what is the word I am looking for here? But it's a, I don't know, like a refinement even. There's something Hmm. about knowing when to use the tools at your disposal and when not to. That really, I think, is what sets this movie apart. We're definitely going to get both sides of it. The epic sense of scale along with those tiny, intimate moments. And I can't think of a movie that does it better of kind of transitioning between those two things. And you're blown away by these big shots of dinosaurs running to the mountains and everything. But then, you know, you get the kitchen scene and pulls you into that tiny little space and you're just like holding your breath with them. It's really incredible. Yep. A hundred percent agree. Well, like you pointed out at the very beginning, there is a lot to talk about. A lot of it has been talked about. Are we ready to dive in and watch this movie? I cannot wait. I cannot wait either. Let's watch a movie. Let's watch a movie. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents... You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. This is a feeling all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! Down! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. And we're back from watching Jurassic Park. (laughs) Do you want to try that again? I was just like, yes, we are. Yes, that is correct. Factual statement has been made. 
And okay. I didn't feel like there was anything to say, but we, I mean, we can move <laughs> on into our thoughts about yes. Jurassic Park. Okay. What did you come away with this time that you may not have in the past? Because I know we've both yeah. seen this movie now many times, and at least for me, this watch through was as enjoyable as any of the others that I've had. And every time I get to watch it, it's a treat. But did you get anything new out of it this time or see it through a different lens? Yeah, I did. So two things. One is just like a detail that I'd never noticed before. This was actually pointed out by someone in one of the YouTube videos about how this was made that I had never noticed before. And it blew my mind. And that is that when they're in the helicopter and they're about to land and go explore the park, Hammond notes that they have to decrease in altitude pretty quickly and they need to buckle up. So everybody buckles up and Alan can't find the other half of the seatbelt. And he takes two female ends of a seatbelt and ties them together to make it work. And this person pointed out like, hey, that's actually foreshadowing because what happens in this movie, the females get together and make it work. Mm -hmm. And I was just completely, my mind was blown because that is some real beautiful, very subtle foreshadowing. Yeah, I had not picked up on that at all until you mentioned it during the movie. Now, yeah, I think we're both obsessed with, first of all, I'm not even sure I'm ready to claim it as being totally intentional. I want to hear it from somebody on the film crew that it was real because I don't know, maybe there's a possibility, but it definitely seems hard to say that it wouldn't have been intentional. That was definitely one that just kind of blew my mind. And another thing, listen, I have long been a supporter of Dr. Ian Malcolm, but to the point that my Twitter bio for years was that I thought of myself as a Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park type of character. So like, I was a fan. I am a fan, but rewatching it this time, he just kind of, it hit different. I don't know. I wasn't as into it. Is that because previously you used to mansplain chaos theory to every single person you met? Yeah, that was the thing. Okay. Really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. Like, I guess just not being a very clear communicator, but being very enthusiastic about the things he was saying and the science and still being charismatic, even though he wasn't super smooth. So I think that's what I was really connecting with. But there are some things that I still really liked about his character. And mostly it was like his dynamic with Alan. I was way more mm. into how he and Alan were interacting this time around and a little less into just his overall, the way that he was with other people and especially the way he was with Ellie. Sidebar, they met on this movie and dated for like two years. Did not know that. Yeah. So... It didn't work on me. <laughs> Did work on Laura Dern. Yep. <laughs> or at least not adult me. <laughs> How about you? What really jumps out to you from this watch? So for me, I think the big shift in my viewing this time was watching Hammond more. I think in the past, I have identified with the paleontologists and kind of gone through the emotional journey of what it would have been like for them. This time I was watching it I don't know, with a more critical eye and noticed more of John Hammond's movements and his emotions and kind of what he was going through, bringing these people to his island, showing it off, having this massive project that he's been working on for years and years and years. And he is watching people react to his creation. And I was watching him watch people <laughs> react <laughs> to his yeah. creation. So it was a bit meta, but... I was much more focused on him this time and the circumstances that he created on the island, the people that he put in place to kind of enable this to happen. Because once he gets the people on the island, there's a lot of objection to what's going on. But before that, there would have been a lot of infrastructure that he would have built up, 
other scientists that would have been involved in the project. And it made me wonder, kind of like, are the people that are on this island the enablers? Or did he sell the project differently to different people? How did this kind of come to be where he either heard this feedback and dismissed it or dismissed the people that were trying to give him negative feedback and only built an environment where his money and his word was the final word on the situation? I mean, I'll be honest, knowing humans, people, (laughs) I'm going to guess the latter. Yeah. Because so often people say, oh, no, 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 it's not that I can't accept feedback. It's that they didn't believe in my vision, you know? Mm. So I'm Mm going to guess that he let some scientists go for not believing in his vision. And that's how we got to this very bloody place. (laughs) Yes. But he still, at some point, he was still striving for something. I guess it was just an endorsement. But at times, he does seem like he genuinely wants to know what they believe. And then when they tell him what they believe, it is handled very poorly. Yeah. Maybe he's like the optimist of like, if I can just find the right people that understand what I'm doing here, then they will endorse it. Then it'll be okay. I'll get my sign off and I'll be able to believe myself that I've created something wonderful. Yeah. And there we have one of our classic, the road to hell is paved with good intentions type of like narcissism as optimism, you know, Mm, like mm -hmm. he cannot accept that he's not right. And it's because of like, again, with the vision, like I can see it and they just can't. If you just need someone to believe in me and help me accomplish, and then we'll all see that all the little children love my dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) He is. And he kind of has a childlike spirit, too, himself. Going through this, he's very enthusiastic. There's a scene where he is introducing the movie that will explain the science behind how they were able to create this environment, all that stuff. And he's just so giddy with like, oh, yes, you know, this is me. This is my, (laughs) that's me on the screen. He's talking to me. And like, you can tell that he just loves all the attention to detail he's put in and he's giddy for much of it. And like I said, he's looking not just metaphorically, but like he is physically looking at these other people that he's brought in to see their reactions. Like there's a scene where a velociraptor is being fed a cow and everybody in the scene is looking at the cow and the interaction there. Hammond is looking at the people because he's seen it. He knows that, but like he's so much more interested in how people Mm -hmm. are reacting to it now, which I thought was pretty interesting. It is. I mean, anybody who's written anything or made a film or anything, you know, if somebody's watching it with you, you're just like so desperate to see how they're reacting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, okay. Before we get into the plot summary portion. Quickly becoming my favorite part of the show, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Oh, I appreciate that. I hope this one holds up. So before we do that, though, is it good? Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Is it fun? Absolutely. Is it adventure? Interesting question. Yes. Yes. What do you think? I say yes. I mean, I guess the only reason that a person might not is that it's like a scary monster movie type of deal. And now I say that kind of heavy quotes because Spielberg has talked about how he didn't want it to be a monster movie. They are just animals. And even Alan says that in the movie. But I just mean in the broader sense, you know, it's a big, scary dinosaur movie. Well, speaking of big, scary dinosaur movie, you had done some research on how long dinosaurs were actually on camera. And it's so tiny in comparison to... The aspects of humans grappling with the situation, kind of like the dynamics between the paleontologist and Ham. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Nope. Nope. We each get one per episode. Okay. So now you've used your, you've, <laughs> used, your, you've used yours. Up. If I do another one, I have to put what, like one of Ray's arms in the tip jar or something. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> okay. Poor guy, this is an arm. Anyway, yes. So to the statistic that you were talking about. 
I want to make you guess, but you already know. Okay, listeners, in your head, guess right now how many minutes of screen time you think dinosaurs are on the screen. Now, the movie is two hours and six minutes long. So out of two hours and six minutes, how many minutes do you think dinosaurs are on the screen? Long pause. Okay, it's 15 minutes. It's only 15 minutes. And we're going to talk a lot more about the actual creation of the dinosaurs. It's my favorite thing <laughs> possibly in the world. I spent so much time on this. But nine of those minutes are animatronic dinosaurs and six minutes are CGI. So for all of the incredible groundbreaking CGI that was developed for this movie, it produced six minutes of footage. The animatronics, meanwhile, which there's a whole big drama about, oh no, what's happening to animatronics? And the animatronics team is getting overshadowed. They produced nine minutes of footage, so more. But overall, only 11% of this film is scenes with dinosaurs in it. Yep, I was staggered. That's amazing. So, okay, good, fun adventure. How well does it hold up is another one we often do at the beginning. So well. I can think of few things that hold up as well. I think it'll hold up in the way that, like, Looking back at early movies, in that case, actual intended to be monster movies, you know, Godzilla and stuff like that. Looking back, can we tell that things are not real? Yes. Does the way that they have executed those effects at that time still make for a very impactful movie that holds up? I mean, there's a reason that modern filmmakers often reference those old movies in spite of tech that's way out of date, you know, as their favorites. And that has to do with the storytelling, blah, blah, blah. So I'm sure there's stuff you can see, of course. Even now, though, the CGI looks amazing. The animatronics look great. Yeah. Like you said, the blending of them is really what makes this so successful. And just like as shorthand, anytime you see the full body of a dinosaur, that's usually CGI. And anytime you see a part of a dinosaur, that's usually animatronics. Right. I think that the Triceratops is the exception because she's laying on her side and they didn't have to fight gravity to have her hold it up. There are only like a few axes of motion in it. Her jaw opens and closes. Yeah, and her belly. Her chest open. rises and falls. And it's such a large apparatus that those things, since she's on her side, you know, those movements are not exceptionally stressing and so can be done pretty easily, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk a lot more about that. Before we get into that, we really should do our plot summary for anybody. Plot summary. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if there's anyone left on the planet that hasn't seen this movie, I hope this helps. But for those of us who have, just as a reminder and just as sort of a fun celebration of the plot, we're going to do it. So deep breath. On a rainy night, a group of uniformed workers unloads a giant metal crate containing something wild, and one of them gets eaten. Elsewhere, a man in a suit looks deeply uncomfortable visiting a mine in the jungle where a very special piece of amber has been found. Finally, we cut to an archaeological dig where lots of people with brushes uncover the easiest dinosaur skeleton ever. This is where we meet our charming, dusty heroes, Dr. Ellie Sattler and Dr. Alan Grant, who are clearly in some kind of relationship because he touches her butt immediately. <laughs> <laughs> they would prefer to stay dusty, but someone interrupts their plans. A helicopter touches down, bringing the pathologically entitled John Hammond, who invades their trailer and opens their champagne without asking. He offers to fund their dig for the next three years on one condition, that they come with him to take a look at something he's been working on. Meanwhile, in Costa Rica, the most annoying man alive engages in corporate espionage. Dennis, because of course that's his name, is going to smuggle something in a Barbasol can, and that's about all we know, except that he's chaotic evil because who else would put shaving cream on someone else's pie? <laughs> Sidebar, I'm doing my first D&D, &D, so... And I'm very yeah. proud. Yeah, thank you. Back in the helicopter, Ellie and Alan, along with Hammond, Jeff Goldblum, and the lawyer from the Amber Mine, approach a lush, mountainous island. 
This is Isla Nublar, the home of Jurassic Park, where Hammond has been cloning dinosaurs like the one that ate that guy a minute ago. Thanks to that little accident, the park's investors wanted the lawyer and a bunch of scientists to sign off on things. They begin exploring the island and are astounded to see a real live Brachiosaurus. Brachiosaurus? Brachiosaurus? Who knows? It's, it's a dead language. Nobody knows how to pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't do it right. Do it again? No. <laughs> okay. Anyways, whatever it's called, it's chomping on the trees. All of this is thanks to dino DNA recovered from mosquitoes preserved in amber, patched up with frog DNA that definitely won't cause any problems down the line. To keep them from breeding, all the cloned dinos are female, but Jeff Goldblum, a.k.a. Dr. Ian Malcolm, points out that life, uh, finds a way. Hammond is frustrated that none of the science folks are on his side, while the lawyer is stoked about how much money they're going to make. This party's just lacking one thing. Children! Enter Hammond's grandkids, Lex and Tim, who are going to ride along and test out the park. The group goes out on a tour in a pair of automated SUVs with Hammond in a control room, monitoring their progress. They don't see much, so Alan decides to go AWOL. The others follow, and they come across a sick triceratops. Ellie decides to stick around with the vet, and the others go back to the cars because a major storm is blowing in. Most of the park staff clears out, leaving the guests and Hammond's core team, including corporate espionage Dennis and the chief engineer, Ray. Dennis shuts down the security system for a brief window so he can steal dinosaur embryos and smuggle them out in the Barbasol can. Then he takes a jeep and books it for the docks. His sabotage also shuts down the electric tour vehicles, leaving Alan and Ian stuck in one, and the crap lawyer and the kids in the other, directly next to the T-Rex paddock. Oh, and the electric fence containing her shuts down too. She eats the lawyer first, but in spite of some very close calls, Alan and the kids escape. Ian isn't dead, but he is hurt and stuck in the car for a bit. The rainstorm isn't working out so well for Dennis either. He gets lost, gets out of the car, drops the embryos, and then gets fucked up by a pretty adorable Dilophosaurus. Meanwhile, there's a lot of stuff happens in this movie. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ellie and the park's game warden, Robert Legday Muldoon, search for the group. They find Ian and get away just before the T-Rex eats them all. Alan, Lex, and Tim almost die a couple of times, but end up having kind of a nice night, actually, in a tree. When they come down in the morning, Alan finds some recently hatched eggs. The ladies have found a way, thanks to their amphibian DNA. Back in the control center, Hammond and Ray can't reboot the system without fully shutting down the grid and rebooting from another location. Ray goes off to do that, but when he doesn't come back, Ellie and Legday go after him to try to complete the process. Ellie runs in, only to discover not only Ray's severed arm, but that the velociraptors have been released. This info comes a little too late for the warden, who has been patrolling outside and is killed by one very clever girl. In another part of the park, Alan has safely returned Lex and Tim to the visitor center and heads out to look for Ellie, thinking the kids are safe. But he is very, very wrong, because the raptors are already inside. The raptors are coming from inside the building! <laughs> Thanks to some quick thinking, Lex and Tim manage to escape and run back to Alan and Ellie. They all reach the control room and manage to hold off the raptors long enough to restore the park's power. The raptors catch up as they're escaping through the visitor center, but they're all saved by the T-Rex's impressive appetite for other dinos. Hammond and Ian pull up in a jeep, and the whole group makes it to the helicopter and safely leaves the island, escorted by pelicans as a gentle reminder that birds used to be dinosaurs. And The end. Yes. That was a very accurate representation of the movie, except for one part. We keep talking about how Dennis was, like, participating in corporate espionage and sabotaging things, but that guy... Man, he was just playing pretend and, you know, thought he could make out with a cool hey, million dollars or something. I didn't say he was good at it. No, I know. But I guess, like, the category is still espionage, even if it's bad. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that because I actually cut out a line that I had in there about how it's amazing that nobody notices because he's so bad at it. 
But yeah. they had other things on their mind. The best time to get away with corporate espionage badly is while a bunch of people are getting eaten by dinosaurs, yeah. including yourself in the end. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. Well, he got what was coming to him. There are some great moments that he has, though. I love that one where he's driving out and it's super steamy in the Jeep and his wiping his eyeglasses with his finger. Mm -hmm. Dennis has some great moments, even though he's very annoying. Yeah. The other favorite Dennis moment is kind of as we are first introduced to him and he's taking the money, receiving the Barbasol can. Like, he's just so happy that he gets to be... (laughs) He's gleeful. He's absolutely gleeful. Yeah, he does like the human tippy taps thing, you know. (laughs) He's enjoying it so much when it's still theoretical. But once it actually moves from theory into he has to execute this plan and get out, Mm -hmm. you can tell that he's struggling. Yeah. And then, yes, ultimately meets Uh, his uh, demise. uh, uh, uh. (laughs) Please! God damn it! Hate this hacker crap! So Dennis is a good side character, small character. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though he does, like, instigate basically the entire plot. Also, in this, of course, we get Samuel L. Jackson, who we, on record, have loved, (laughs) do love, Mm -hmm. continue love. So there are some great minor characters in this movie, but mostly it's a big ensemble cast that just works really, really well together. Oh, speaking of casting, I know we like to talk about alternative casting. True. This movie has some interesting ones. Honestly, basically pick a character and I can tell you something that almost happened. Who is your favorite character, by the way? Who's my favorite character? Yeah. Oof. Muldoon, probably. Did I pick the wrong one? Well, you picked one that I don't have any information on. So how about your <laughs> okay. second favorite? Who is your second uh, favorite My character? second favorite character is... <laughs> the kid. The boy. The boy kid. Okay. Tim. Tim. Okay, so actually, I don't have alternative, but I do have casting information for him. So he actually auditioned for... Oh, God. What was it? I feel like it was E.T. And they were just like, you're too young, but we like you. Actually, specifically Spielberg was like, hey, don't worry about it, kid. I've got a movie for you coming up. Mm. So they found him through casting another movie and just liked him enough that he got this role. And later as an adult, he was talking about this and he was like, honestly... I think it worked out pretty well for me. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I don't know. I agree. I don't regret losing that part. <laughs> I mean, most Spielberg yeah. projects are going to do well. So, yeah, you can't go too wrong when you right. accept a part from Steven Spielberg. His sister, though, is one where there was an alternative, and that is Christina Ricci auditioned for that role. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Was she the right age? I guess. That's so <laughs> interesting. 93. I need to do the math on this. I also need to make sure that I remember when E.T. came out because I'm, like, super nervous that I messed that up. But anyway, we'll check that out. So she was almost Lex. Going kind of to the top billing cast, Alan, William Hurt turned it down. So we almost got William Hurt, Mm. which I think he would have been fine in this role. On the more famous side of things, Harrison Ford. Yeah. Yep, I've heard about Harrison Ford. I did the math for Christine Ricci. She would have been 13 at the time. So... I don't know if that's the same age I'm so as Ariana Richards. Oh, no. It was Hook. I'm remembering now, real time, like it was actually Hook. And I said E.T., which was made in 1982. It was a long wait. He was a fetus, actually, when they first looked at him for that role. Mm-hmm. But they were the same age, roughly. Like within a year of each other, Ariana Richards and Christina Ricci. So that would have been very interesting to see Christina Ricci in that role. Obviously, we have... I feel like I always have the bias that the person who got the role, and if it's a movie that we love and it's the I word. <laughs> <laughs> we don't say the I word on this We podcast. don't say the I word anymore. But 
I will always have a fondness for the person who played the role because it's so hard to get the canonical version of that out of my mind and say like, oh, it would have been so much better with this other person, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pie in the sky anyway. Like, you don't know what they would have done with it. You don't know. No. And to that point, we've got Harrison Ford as a possible for Alan. We also have Sean Connery as a possible for John Hammond. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I emphasize that that way. <laughs> he was offered the role. He did turn it down. So we almost got Indy and Senior part two. I feel like it would have sort of overshadowed things. Yeah, I agree. And another one that I'm glad didn't happen is Jim Carrey auditioned for Ian Malcolm. And I'm sure he would have been memorable for sure. And I'm not even saying it wouldn't have been a good performance, but I do think it would have been a different take and it probably would have overshadowed some things. Agreed. And can't tone it down. You don't hire him when you need subtle. <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking a quick second to look at Sean Connery's resume. <laughs> you trying to remind yourself of work he's done? Well, I'm trying to remind myself of when he and Harrison Ford were together. 89. They made uh, Last Crusade in 89. So it would have been four years later, yeah. This is starting to be a theme with the alternative casting stuff that we get. And maybe this is just perception. So if you're someone in the industry or if you have context on this that I don't have, feel free to correct me. But I feel like when we talk about this, it's usually like one or two guys that maybe the director saw as potential. And then with the women's parts, it's like every woman. Mm. I don't know what that's about. I don't know if it's that it's so important that they not only be able to act the role, but that they look right. I don't know, man. But it's always like, well, we looked at Harrison Ford. And then for the women, we looked at Gwyneth Paltrow and Robin Wright and Julia Pinoche and Helen Hunt. That's the list for this role. Mm -hmm. Laura Dern was Spielberg's first choice, but she, as we've seen before, wasn't the only actress who auditioned and she even wasn't the first one to have it offered. So again, with the studios or like casting before they, yeah, I don't know how that works, but whatever. She deserves it. I love her. I'm obsessed a little bit. My <laughs> Okay. There are better movies that she's made than this one I'm about to reference, but my favorite Laura Dern movie is actually David Lynch's Wild at Heart, which is insane. Interesting. It's an insane movie, and I love it. I do love David Lynch, so I'm willing to watch it, and I can understand, obviously, that he can produce some pretty crazy stuff. I just have not seen Wild at Heart yet, so... Yeah, well, it's her and Nicolas Cage playing essentially Bonnie and Clyde-type characters sort of, but then there is Willem Dafoe with these bizarre fake teeth. Oh, gosh. There's Crispin Glover is in it. It almost is like David Lynch by John Waters. It's interesting. <laughs> it's so weird, and I love it so much. That's so interesting. She's wearing, like, lace porn bodysuits the whole time, and Nicolas Cage is basically doing an Elvis impression. Like, it is so amazing. Wow. It's so weird. Anyway. Yeah, right in if you want to see that movie show up <laughs> <laughs> on next season. I'll have to think about whether we could swing it as an adventure movie, but if you guys want to see it, then I will be delighted to do it. So tell me what part of this you want to talk about, because we could go into how this movie got made. The rights were sold before the book was even published. We could talk about the CG aspect. I watched way too much about how ILM did the dinosaurs. What are you feeling drawn to? I mean, the most engaging part of this movie for me is the characters and mm -hmm. that's where i spend most of my time thinking about the movie is the interactions between people kind of the humanity aspect the hubris the idea of man and nature coexisting in the same environment you know man kind of playing god and there are some really good moments in the movie where people call that out and i like those moments and kind of thinking about that but 
the production site is also very, very interesting. <laughs> if you have material there, feel free, just go ham. Well, what I'm hearing is that I should save my what the dino snot was made from for a what? little bit later <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> no, that's things. okay. <laughs> yeah, so you're talking about the character development, you're talking about the interpersonal human stuff, you're talking about our hubris as humans. What interactions really are your favorites there or really stand out to you? So there are some monologues that I really like, and a lot of them are the times where people are trying desperately to break through with Hammond and like, mm -hmm. see what you're doing here, please, for the love of God, you know, see what you've created. And there are some really great lines. I think Malcolm has one where he's talking about the lack of humility before nature. Yeah. And that was just such a great line to say, yes, we've gotten the science nailed down. And we can do these things. However, please look at the history of our species, look at how things like this have gone in the past, of course, in different contexts, but experimentation in science has, has gone awry many times before. <laughs> so so I was very attentive to the interaction between somebody who had a very big vision and was trying to create it and get people on board with it and the pushback of nature, right? Of all of those years of evolution, like all of that was pushing back on him and he was still really focused on making it work. And yet the weight of the world right. was pushing the other direction. To what you're saying, like, I think one of the primary issues with Hammond is that he sees it as entertainment. He's talking about how it's not that different from any other park. And then we get a really great line from Ian where Hammond is saying like, oh, well, you know, like a lot of parks have to do blah, blah, blah. And Ian says, yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, pirates don't eat the tourists. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I really like that line. I mean, it's kind of a flippant offhand kind of deal. But to what you're saying, he is seeing it as exploration and entertainment and we can do it. Why shouldn't we do it? And you're not embracing the adventurous spirit of this thing. And meanwhile, the scientists are like, okay, but the stakes are different, bro. Yeah. The title of the movie could have been The Jurassic Experiment or The Jurassic mm -hmm. Project or, you know, whatever, but it's not. It's Jurassic Park. This was something that was created to be shared with not just the world, children. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Snack size people. Oh, gosh. But yeah, you're absolutely correct that he's not just caught up in the science of making it happen. He's also caught up in making it available, making it marketable, getting legal sign off, which by the way, that lawyer, I know that his very first thought upon seeing a live dinosaur was we're going to be rich. Yeah. But as somebody who knows a lot of lawyers, I could have <laughs> almost guaranteed that 100% of them would have been saying, this is a massive liability. <laughs> like, yes, please yeah. do not keep going. Please <laughs> pause. You know, we yeah. need 10 more years before anybody sees this. Yeah. The 90s movies really hated lawyers. Yeah. I mean, a lot. <laughs> you know, another thing about Hammond, too, and this is just kind of a little sidebar, but, you know, we're talking about Parks and we're talking about how he's seeing this. You know, Michael Crichton described him, and I really like this, as a dark Walt Disney. So just kind of backing up, mm. like, how he's seeing all of this per the author. But it's not even really dark Walt Disney because normal Walt Disney was dark Walt Disney. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> this is just Walt Disney with bigger guns. I don't know what yeah. to call it. No, I got you. I mean, people die. There's actually a hilarious... It's not hilarious. Oh, my God, Emily. People are dying. There's a really interesting 
I'm trying to remember if it's like a Reddit thread or something, but if you Google like deaths at Disney, it's actually kind of interesting. <laughs> Stuff happens at the parks. That's a rabbit trail that I have not gone down in the save past. For the best. But I'll save that for a day when I'm rainy day uh, googling. Really bored <laughs> or, <something. laughs> or in a very specific mood. Deaths at Disney World. Yeah. So anyway. So I talked about my character fascinations. What were the things that fascinated you from the production perspective? I know you did a lot of research on the <laughs> CG stuff, so dinosaurs. yeah, hit me with it. And oh yeah, and dinosaurs. I got very into the dinosaurs. So as background, I, I don't know, some number of months ago, earlier this year, whatever, watched a, I think it's six part series on Disney Plus called Light and Magic. That's just about ILM. And the last episode is mostly about Jurassic Park and kind of the culmination of a lot of the work that that whole ILM team had done from when they were founded kind of up to the point that they started to be an early version of what they are now. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the first things I thought of when we were going to do this movie. So I went back and watched that episode and did some additional research and boy, there's some drama. (laughs) Basically, they had originally planned to make this movie with stop motion animation and some animatronics, but the stop motion animation for the walking dinosaurs, I almost said walking talking, (laughs) walking dinosaur scenes. But During this time, the computers, what they could do was really blossoming. This guy Mm -hmm. named Steve Williams was on the computer animation team. And he just sort of, outside of his other project work, was fooling around with making a walking dinosaur skeleton in all CGI. You know, meanwhile, the creature shop is just like busting ass to build beautiful models. And then they're working on the stop motion. So they kind of have no idea what's coming in their industry, let alone for the specific movie. So Steve Williams is fooling around with the walking dino. He shows it to some people, including, I believe, Kathleen Kennedy, who, of course, is, I think, president of Lucasfilm now. But at any rate, she's been involved with Spielberg and Lucas from, like, day one. She is, like, huge, amazing person in this industry. So Kathleen Kennedy basically pats him on the back and is like, you have a very bright future, (laughs) young man. (laughs) And the team is like, hey, you know, just keep working on this. Keep it kind of chill. Not secret, but just kind of play around. See what you can come up with. Meanwhile, Creature Shop is still going full steam. Eventually, Steve Williams, and he wasn't the only one. Like, he started working with the other guys. And I wish I had those names handy. But they put together basically an MVP of, like, a skinned dinosaur. And they exported it to play on the big screen in a screening room. And this moment is basically what changed everything in movies. Spielberg was in that room, of course, and he has described this moment in interviews as a religious experience. So they got that up there and everybody was like, holy shit. People described people jumping up, like physically jumping up out of their seats and yelling, like just, it was huge. It was a huge moment. And like overnight, Bill Tippett and the Creature Shop, he was the guy who was leading that, were just sort of, they felt obsolete. Yeah. There's actually a really great story. This all turns out well, by the way. I'm just going to like, for anybody who's like anxious about these people losing their <laughs> jobs, I promise it will. So during this screening, you know, he was there and he saw this. And after it, Spielberg went over to him and was like, hey, uh, Phil, how you feeling? And he said, I feel extinct. And mm. that is where the line in the movie comes from. Because Spielberg oh. was like, I'm taking that. <laughs> so wow. later on, when I think it's Ian asks Alan, like, how are you dealing with all of this? And he said, he didn't say I feel extinct exactly. He said something else. And then Ian says, I think you mean extinct. So what are you thinking? Huh. We're out of a job. Don't you mean extinct? Anyway, it came from a real reaction. 
So the creature shop is like, oh, no. (laughs) But ILM showed some real foresight because they were like, you know what? No, because you guys know so much about motion and we're still going to need all of that stop motion modeling experience, like the people who understand how muscles work, the people who understand how weight affects movement. We still need all of that, even though it's computers. So they moved him overseeing the animators, basically, and said like, okay, don't worry about it. Now your job is, you don't have to know how to animate, but you do need to manage them and show them how to make things move right. Yes. And now we have tools where inverse kinematics and musculoskeletal models are built in so you know you can actually apply different forces to models back then it was all being done by hand and i can totally understand the kind of religious experience of seeing these things come to life in that way it's probably not a fair comparison but what it kind of makes me feel like is jason the argonauts when they first Mm. get skeletons Things that are not humans acting on the screen, but have movement. And by the way, if you watch that, it's incredible. The way that they react to the things on screen. It's so cool. It's mind boggling for the time. Anyway, that's a completely different discussion. But yeah, bridging this gap from animatronics and stop motion, there was probably this very uncanny valley where CG hadn't really crossed that gap. And now we're getting into the time where you buy it, your eyes believe it, and you're not having to do kind of like mental gymnastics to make it work. And that's probably, since I wasn't there, like that's how I imagine it going down. I mean, you're talking about all of that stuff that we can do now. These are the people. This is why we can do it now. Mm -hmm. Because they were there putting this work in. They also, my favorite part though of how they did all of this is, I think it was that same guy, Phil Tippett, that was like, okay, animators, you guys need to go to movement classes. And so they all together Mm -hmm. went to dance movement classes. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And then they came back to the studio and I guess it's really more of like a warehouse (laughs) where they were at the time, but they came back to the studio and then used sort of that motion training to practice being dinosaurs out in the parking lot. (laughs) I would have loved, is there a film of that? Because... Uh, Yes, there is. It's amazing. (laughs) So it's a bunch of 90s animators in, you know, those, like, at the time, it was always, like, huge, big, bulky t-shirts and cargo shorts and stuff. Oh, yeah. All of them running around, and the footage that I've seen is them as velociraptors, so they've got their little hands up, and they're just, they're, like, looking around with the little darty eyes and their little hands up. It is so hilarious. And so they basically blocked out scenes. They acted Mm -hmm. like the dinosaurs. They had done some training in what the behavior of these animals may have been like. So they knew how to move like a flock. They, it's just, they're practicing being dinosaurs. They set up some poles, things to like act as the, there's a scene in the movie, and you may remember this, where I heard of, it's not the velociraptors, but it's the animal where Alan's like, oh, they do run in a herd. Mm -hmm. So they're jumping over logs. Yes. So they set up stuff to act as the logs. And then this one guy was going to be the one that hops on top of it and just like looks around. And Mm -hmm. that poor guy, uh, he jumped up on top of it and slid off and then landed and broke his animation arm. (laughs) It's not funny, but it is kind of funny. Anyway, the joke in the documentary is like, from that point on, they were like, no more pretending to be dinosaurs. But it led to some of the greatest, most groundbreaking CGI that we've ever seen. Yes. So, of course, it's very early and they are innovating all of this stuff. So the part of what you're talking about earlier with like how the pieces work together. So they kind of used some of the stop motion aspects of what they had been doing. And they were making these figures 
that fed movements into the computer. So they were still doing that thing of carefully moving the dinosaur model. It just was now feeding that data into a computer. Then the digital animators were going and like painting it layer by layer. And they tried using programs to like replicate patterns and stuff, but it just looked too fake and they ended up digitally mm. painting it by hand. So, That's a lot of work. It is. That's why we only have six minutes of it in the film. <laughs> yes. But my favorite, this is the last part of this, I promise. But one of my favorite details was that they did the guy when the lawyer gets eaten off the toilet. Mm -hmm. That's CGI as well. And they just used the data from Terminator. That's just T-1000 oh. dressed. They just used the Interesting. Huh. Put some shorts or pants on him, whatever, plonked him on the toilet. Chomp. Okay. So technically, Terminator is in this movie. Yeah. And that toilet, by the way, very flimsy. <laughs> I do walls. not understand. <laughs> the walls just like fall away from each other. I mean, how much force are they built to take? And is it the force of an adult T-Rex? <laughs> okay, fair, fair. <laughs> so that's my little nerd out moment. You said you'd done research on the dinosaurs as well. Was that the dinosaur animatronics or was that the dinosaurs from the time or the dinosaur CGI? Well... I only did fake dinosaur research. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't really do any real dinosaur research. So let's see. The only other one that I wanted to make sure I got out there is during the movie, we were talking about that scene where the brachiosaur sneezes on Lex. Yes. And at the time we were like, what is that made of? That looks so oh, gross. Yes. So the answer to that and to any place that dinosaur mucus is in this movie, and I'm not 100% sure about how to pronounce this, but it's like methacryl or methacryl. It's got to be because it's like acrylic, okay. which is just a... Uh, mm -hmm. So it's like okay. acidic. Whatever. Gross. <laughs> okay. Yes, it's gross. But also, this is my favorite, KY jelly, green and yellow food colorings and food thickener. So they mm. basically were like, let's get a bunch of jelly stuff, put some food coloring in it and splat it on this child. Yes. I'm sure they had some researcher who looked up what mucus from the dinosaur era was like, and they were like, nah, I don't know, let's just throw some goop at them. Yeah, we know they had big sinuses. We don't know what was up in there. Yes. So I really like that. That scene, too, is a part of, you were talking earlier about the characterization and those aspects, and I think for me, the big group of relationships that really jumps out is I love how, even though Alan is like, I don't want kids, I don't want kids, mm -hmm. and that's great. I also have never been a person who wanted to have children, but he still goes into caregiver mode. He is such a great protector of those kids. And he ends up being more compassionate than he thinks he can be. He ends up making them feel very safe. And I just love that. I love him being sort of the great temporary dad figure for them. Yeah, I agree. And we see the shift in how he treats kids, of course, from the very first scene where he's kind of not mocking a child, but putting a kid... The fear of God in that child. Yeah, putting the fear of God in that child, explaining what a velociraptor would be like and that it's not just giant turkey and... Going from having a very sharp interaction with a child or bristly... To be fair, that little kid was being an asshole. Quite true. But yeah, going from that type of interaction to one where, yes, he has that paternal instinct and, you know, is really caring for them and making sure that they're going to be safe. And the way that he talks to them, I think, is also really great. I love films where the adult figures don't talk to kids like they're inferior, yeah. like they're kids. And he talks to them very maturely and then also in such a, not authoritative tone, but one where you trust him. Yeah, no, absolutely. He goes on record to say, I know that people have left you in the past. You know, I know that the lawyer that was in that car ran away. I'm not going to do that. Max, I'm right here. I'm going to look after you, but I have to go help you, brother. So I want you to stay right here and wait for me. He left us. He left us. 
but that's not what I'm gonna do. And he makes good on all of these promises, and that's why we love him so much. I mean, that's one of my favorite moments in the film, and my favorite mm-hmm. moment of his, like you said, where she's like, oh, he left us, and he just looks her dead in the eyes and is like, but I'm not gonna do that. Yeah, yep. And just like you said, that reaffirming very secure. I mean, I think authoritative is fine. Like, I think sometimes kids are just looking for, I need to feel safe. I need to feel secure. So yeah, I think that's a great moment. Hard left turn. Another thing I love about this movie is Ellie's legs. She is just (laughs) constantly in these little shorts and boots and just running around on her little athletic legs. And every time I'm like, you look cute little legs. (laughs) You were fawning over her legs. I was fawning over Muldoon's legs. I know. There's some leg, if you... (laughs) If you're a yeah. leg aficionado, you got T-Rex legs, Muldoon yes. legs. I mean, speaking of Muldoon's legs. legs, though, he has some quad action. God, like, he does. There's a reason I called him leg day. In the like, yeah. That man is, there's some leg presses happening for sure. Oh, yeah. And I think part of that is just, like, I wasn't a particularly sporty child. And for some reason, of all of the signs of athleticism, it's always been legs for me that I'm like, oh, that person looks so athletic, you know? Mm. So it's not just me being kind of pervy about Ellie. It's like more just, I don't know. Like, I think as young people, we all get something that we'd love to have in our minds. Is like, oh, mm-hmm. that person has amazing legs. I wish I had amazing legs. So that's a little background for me, but I was very fixated on them. And also speaking of Muldoon, to his credit, we haven't talked much about him. This is, again, the game warden for anybody who doesn't remember, but he is the only person in this movie Well, at least the only person on the Jurassic Park team who is not underestimating the dinosaurs. Correct. He takes them seriously from day one. While everybody else is like, it's okay, we can control them. We bred them. And he's like, yeah, good luck with that. And going back to the relationship that Hammond has with his employees, I'm curious how that relationship plays out behind closed doors or like the (laughs) scenes that we didn't see because... Before we have our characters, our paleontologists, our chaotician, chaotician, I think that's what he calls himself. Sure, chaotician, make it to the island. Like somebody's already died, and there's no way that Hammond wasn't aware of that because this was obviously somebody that was on Muldoon's team. Muldoon would have raised it as here's what we need to do to handle these correctly in the future, all of that stuff. But Hammond kind of turns a blind eye to it. But still keeps Muldoon around, probably because in the back of his head, he knows this is what it takes to deal with these Mm -hmm. types of creatures. And that somebody can't underestimate them. You know, I'm going to be off doing my little song and dance over here. But in the back of his mind, he had to know how dangerous they were and kept somebody like that on staff. Yeah. And speaking of things that are dangerous being underestimated, I didn't find much about injuries for the actors, for the crew, anybody in this film. I did, well, actually, that's a funny story, too. I'll tell you that in a second. I did find one, and that was, you know, the scene where it's the T-Rex's sort of first big scary appearance. They're in the rain. They're in the cars. Yes. And Alan goes to get a flare. Yes. And wave it around to distract the T-Rex. So in shooting that scene, Sam Neill lost a chunk of the skin in his arm because a piece of the burning phosphorus from the flare got stuck under his watch and just, like, burned away a piece of his skin, his, like, arm. Yeah. I've had that happen on a much smaller scale, but... Yeah, I mean... That was bad. To get it stuck under your watch and just have the air, like, burn it... But the other thing I was going to say that I just remembered this, it was like a production thing that happened. So some of the animatronics apparently had sound wired into them as well. And it was very rainy. 
I don't think they added the hurricane for this reason or anything, but they were shooting in an area that hurricanes happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sorry, I was just having a little moment remembering my fair lady. And hurricanes hardly ever happen. Oh, yes. <laughs> anyway, so hurricanes do happen where they were, and they actually had one during production. So there was a lot of rain. And of course, mm-hmm. rain will affect your electronics. Mm-hmm. And so they would be like sitting around at the lunch table and then rain would be getting into an animatronic part of a dinosaur and the staff would just be like eating their sandwiches and they'd hear a dinosaur roar and just see like move <laughs> to these animatronics because they were oh shorting gosh. out. And that just made me laugh so hard. It was just sitting there like, yeah, we got through a bunch of scenes. We're ahead of schedule. That's great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and people would like scream and like start running before they realized. Mm-hmm. Cause like, how do you not have that reaction? It's yeah. instinctual. <laughs> I don't know. I'd run and scream because it would obviously be the sound of like millions of dollars and hours <laughs> Cover with a tarp. being covered in water. Yeah. I mean, you think tarps, but... No, this is 1993. Tarps hadn't been invented. <laughs> right. And there are some fun little bits. Like, I enjoyed learning about the sounds that were used to make up the dinosaur mm-hmm. roars. First of all, I want to say that each dinosaur sounds distinct, and I love that. Yeah. But then as we were watching it, I think we were both picking out like, oh, that sounds kind of like walrus, you know, or like, oh, that sounds kind of like this or that, uh, depending on what was on screen. You in particular had called out that part of the sound that the T-Rex was making sounded like an alligator thrumming. Yes, yes, correct. So you were right about that, actually. So the T-Rex roar is composed of dog. (laughs) I love this list so much. Okay, dog, penguin. Tiger snarl, alligator gurgle, and baby elephant squeal. And apparently, specifically with the baby elephant squeal, they were, of course, just recording sound. And they said, oh, that's really good. Can you get it to do it again? And the trainer was like, I have never heard that sound before. (laughs) (laughs) So this baby elephant, like one specific baby elephant just made a weird sound. And then they used that. I want to know where the penguin sound was used. <laughs> know, that, right? that one seems like the odd one out in the list. Yes. All the others are kind of like imposing animals. And I mean, a baby elephant is still <laughs> a very large animal, but right. penguins just seem like the odd one out there. Yeah. Well, and with the Brachiosaurus, it's whale and donkey. Whale makes a lot of sense. Yeah, donkey makes a lot of sense too. Yep. And those are two very disparate sounds. So I'm very curious. I want to hear them separately and then together as this, but I thought you would enjoy that. Oh, absolutely. And to be clear, crocodiles are dinosaurs, or alligators are <laughs> dinosaurs. They were just too lazy to evolve. So <laughs> yeah, we do live with dinosaurs still. Totally. And, you know, the sound was responsible for two of the three Academy Awards at this film. Yeah. So it won Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Sound. So yep. they put their effort in and they got rewarded for it. It's incredible. I would say secondarily to the character moments that we get and, you know, some of the acting, you know, these, not speeches, but great lines that we get about nature and about life. Second to all of that, my favorite aspects are the atmospheres. It feels so real. You almost feel cold and wet when they're out in this. And I just really enjoyed that aspect this time through, especially. Oh, totally. I feel like for me, the water was very well used in this. The rain mm-hmm. was very well used. We were talking about that during the movie, too, because I get cold anytime it's really heavily rainy on screen. Yeah. So I'm with you there. I was just sort of like, I was getting chilly and it was making it that much more impactful for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a delight to get to watch it again, for sure, for me. Me as well. Do you have any other topics you wanted to cover? 
I'm almost done with what I had written down, but I do have one last thing I wanted to talk about, which is just, we have obviously amazing performances. We have amazing CGI and animatronics. We've just talked about the atmosphere, the physical locations, the rain, all of this stuff. I also feel like this movie does a really good job of interacting with its sets and its set Mm. dressing. Or maybe put another way, like, they planned that really well. The set dressing people did a fantastic job. But when you think about scenes that are, like, super iconic. Oh, I did it. I said the I word. (laughs) (laughs) But, okay. (laughs) We'll figure out a punishment later. (laughs) I don't have a raise arm handy to throw in the jar. Yeah, I think that's a pretty unreasonable expectation. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But when you think about those well-known scenes... We have the banner fluttering down in front of the T-Rex. We have my favorite, which is the kids in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Whether it's just the stainless steel doors of those things, the reflections, but my favorite, and this is actual set dressing, is those ladles. Like when Tim spins around the corner and he knocks up against them and he realizes they're going to make a sound and he puts his hands back to like hold them still. And then later Lex takes one and knock, knock, knock on the ground. Those types of things are so seamless. Of course, that's what you would do. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what makes really great set design and set dressing. Absolutely. It should feel like, of course, of course that was there. Not like, oh, so convenient that they happen to have. So. Yeah, no deus ex there. It's you're in a kitchen, you use what's in the kitchen. Yeah. One of the things that really stood out to me too, in scenes like that, where the lights are off, there are darker scenes. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of this movie happens in the dark either because the lights are out in the facility due to a power outage or it's night or they've intentionally darkened the scene to make sure that they go undetected. But a lot of the movie is dark, but it doesn't feel like a dark movie. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like you're straining your eyes or anything like that. I've certainly seen many movies where it is physically very dark and you kind of like lean in needing to see more. And then, you know, you get jump scares and things like that. It's more horror-y, but the scenes that were shot in Jurassic Park that were meant to be in the dark are still very, very colorful. Yeah. And I was really surprised to see that, especially, I think the scene that was most surprising to me is when the T-Rex has smashed the car and it's sliding off into the tree. Yes. The colors on the car are still so vibrant, even though it's meant to be very, very dark. And that really stood out to me in the moment. And so just the art of being able to shoot a scene where you clearly know it's night, but, you know, you can still very vividly see all of the action. I think that's a really great balancing act. Yep. Yep. The lighting people deserve some amazing props for that. I think the one that most famously did not successfully do night shooting is I know that when that one episode of Game of Thrones came out, everybody was like, what the fuck? Like, I can't see anything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do not uh, know Game of Thrones, so I can't identify with that one. Yes, well, our audience. Well, that's become like a modern trend of like, how mm. dark can we make this before causing actual clinical eye strain? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Speaking of color, professional segue, our next movie is extremely colorful. You have not seen it. It is The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> so I have not seen it. I am also very excited, but I have seen the casting I know who's in this movie, and I am very intrigued to see their performances. Oh, man. This movie is its own thing. The performances are fantastic. The cast is amazing. Everybody is such a perfect combination. One of the things that this movie does so well is have a 
and I've said this before, but I'm going to trademark it, like a massive cast of amazing people who are taking their characters completely seriously and also having a tremendous amount of fun with the story. So, mm. you know, I think it's really what makes it work. There is not an ounce of disrespect for these characters. It is so full of heart. It is so absolutely funny. It is bizarre. It is many, many things. And so I'm very excited to watch it. It also, I'm sure, is not something that jumps to mind as like an iconic adventure movie, but that's exactly what it is because they are literally driving across Australia in this ridiculous bus. <laughs> so it's like a road trip adventure. Obviously, things happen. They break down. They stop places. They meet characters. It's like the definition of an adventure movie. It just happens to be a bunch of 90s Australian drag queens. <laughs> I'm very excited. It's so good. <laughs> I also want to make a prediction. I think I know who your favorite character is going to be. Okay. And I think it's going to be Bernadette. Okay. Well, I don't know who that is. I know, but, but I want I'm it on the I'm excited to see if you were... <laughs> I'm excited to see if you're correct. <laughs> I want it on the record. I think that Mason's favorite character is going to be Bernadette. And the beauty of this is that he doesn't know anything about what I'm talking about, and he'll probably forget before we go watch it. So I like to think you'll go into this clean, and we'll get to see without my prediction swaying your opinions. Okay. All right. So next week, Priscilla Queen of the Desert... I am so ready for it. But for now, let's just say thank you once again for spending this time with us. If you want to talk to us more, this is a big episode announcement. You can now email us at our email address, theadventurelings at gmail.com. If you have favorite characters, if you have production details, if you have things that you want to yell at us about, if you have questions, things you'd like to see, movies you'd like to see, please tell us what is your favorite adventure movie. We have a big, massive database that we are working from. So let's make sure your favorite movie is in that list. Also, of course, on Instagram at The Adventure Links and on our website at TheAdventureLinks.com. Yeah, I think you covered it all. Super smooth, like always. Yep. So at this point, we've actually started releasing some episodes and it's been super fun to get feedback and please continue doing that. We've seen engagement from all around the world and we would love to hear about your experiences with adventure movies how different cultures interact with these movies, maybe in a way that we haven't had the insight for. So please reach out to us again yep. at theadventurelings at gmail.com. We would love to start that conversation with you. Yep. I especially want to shout out some of the people like, you know, we can see the locations, but not, of course, who the people are. So I just want to say thank you to the one person in Uganda, the one person in Honduras, the one person in Guatemala. We also have Belgium, Puerto Rico, and Singapore. We have St. Kitts and Nevis as well. Oh, the nation of Georgia. That's my favorite. So yeah, shout out to St. Kitts and Nevis folks. as well. Thank you guys for <laughs> listening to us. Also, of course, people all over the U.S. We also are from the U.S. and we appreciate your listening. <laughs> but it's also always fun when you're like, hello, Belgium. Yes. <laughs> you know. So thank you guys. And we'll talk to you next week. On the Adventure Links. What's our sign off for Brawl Tape? Mm. Go to the movies. Pop, pop, pop. What's that sound? <laughs> I have no... <laughs> I'm going to do it. I can't say flabbergasted seriously, apparently. I get out of breath because I don't breathe enough when I'm talking. I would say moderately. Lo moder yeah. I'm going to take a drink and try that word again. Alan has returned safe. How blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the part where I start talking out of my ass. <laughs> okay. 10 years... Duh, 20 years... <laughs> Okay, you want to keep going? 30. <laughs> Literally 30. 30 years later. Oh my god, that's embarrassing. We'll come up with it after. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, jeez. Wow. <laughs> 1993. Where were you? B whoa. 
I was five, so I was probably in elementary school. Yeah, I was eight, so I also was in elementary school. I regret cool. this. I regret this. <laughs> it's okay. I'm gonna try it. Oh. <laughs> I actually had an opening that I wanted to um, it's gotta be better try than that. out here. <laughs> Do it. Do you want to try that again?